Welcome to FileMaker Talk. This is Matt Navarre. With his friend, Matt Petrowski. I'm your friend, right? Yes, you are. My most excellent friend, Dr. Petrowski. Okay, enough of the cheese. Um, so, <laughs> we've got... First of all, Happy New Year, everyone. Merry Christmas. Yes. Happy Chanukah. All that, you know, holiday goodness. Hope everybody uh, had good uh, celebration. Yeah, and have holidays, more to come. Whatever uh, they celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Or if they, even if you don't, I hope you had some good time off, you know. So we've got a regularly scheduled program. We've got, we're going to do, it's not FileMaker. We're going to do the, our usual fun stuff. Our main topic is going to be abstraction layers. Pretty dry when I... It sounded more exciting when we talked about it beforehand. Oh, but we've been talking about it, and we just keep going on and on know, and talking about all the different stuff. Hey, we should be recording this, is what one of us said. And then you clicked the button. You said, hey, I'm recording. I said, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> let me click my record button. <laughs> so it's not FileMaker. Our last conversation, you told me about this really cool program that Otherworld Computing, uh, which is MaxSales.com, has. Dang it. And no, wait, wait. You're taking mine. No, That's well, mine. <laughs> <laughs> What's yours? You already used it. My, my oh, it's not FileMaker. Plain and simple is SSD. Solid oh, uh, state yeah, drives. I, I did use that one, but you're yes, going to you go did. into length as to what I got and then what you ended up getting as well, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We'll go in little detail. So I got an iMac. I bought. I got a refurbished iMac from Apple. I shipped it to Otherworld Computing, and I had it configured with two 120 gig solid state drives, and I got the high end ones, the 6G drives. They're like another 50 bucks more or something. My computer is flat out 20 times faster, which blew me away 20 times faster at duplicating large files or any big file access than my old computer, which was also an iMac. And you're loving it. That blew my mind. Dude, um, I, I'm telling you, ever since we saw each other at like DevCon, two DevCons or one, yeah. I forget, however many, and I had put that solid state drive in, I replaced the, the CD drive. Well, I, w I was already using a solid state on my Mac Pro before that, and I, I would never operate a computer without a solid state again. So that's when I put it yep. into, a, um, into my laptop, and then I decided to downsize because I was carrying this beefy you know, Mac Pro. It was under my desk, no big deal, but those things are heavy. I oh, mean, yeah, they are. Super heavy. Yep. I like having all the bays. I like having the extra cards. I had two cards in order to support four monitors. I was only using three. It was basically excess. So I went with the iMac 27-inch refurbished as well. And I was telling you all about it, and then you, you got it. I ordered one that night, actually, I think, when we were talking. And the results have uh, borne fruit, correct? You yes. love it. I tell you, the, the resolution of the iMac 27 is a little... It's too high for a FileMaker developer, especially an old one like me. <laughs> it is pretty high. Actually, it takes a while to get used to it. And any time yeah. you go down from the low, the native re resolution, it gets, you know, you start feeling like an old person because yeah. it's so big on that yep. big screen. But let's explain uh, what people might not know about this 6G versus 3G. Because originally, I don't. When I was explaining to you, I don't know that maybe you did know. You know what was going on in the machine. I did not know what. No, I learned was a whole bunch on. by reading through it all. And that's exactly what I. When I was doing research for the iMac 27, the only reason that I was going in between the 2010 and 2011 was purely because of Thunderbolt. I knew that there were no peripherals, but in order to go 
you know, instead of going from Mac Pro to another newer Mac Pro, I wanted to be able to have the same, relatively the same power that I had with the Mac Pro, but I also wanted to be able to support future technologies. So when they put the Thunderbolt in there, I thought, okay, that's cool. And there's no peripherals for it quite yet, but this OWC program, they'll also actually cut a little hole in your Mac and put in eSATA. And I got that option, but you didn't, right? Right. I don't and really use eSATA drives. I did in the past, but not lately. But we both got the internal... Did you get 120 drives? Yeah. And I got 120 as well. So here's the deal. The solid-state drives are expensive. But your OS and your applications, you don't need a whole lot of space. And you can always move stuff onto the solid-state if you want to work you know, within that. Or you can just even get uh, super beefy RAM. Like I got, uh, I think I got 12 gigs of RAM. Yeah, that's what I got too. Which was like 60 bucks. I mean, come on. (laughs) There you go. So, in fact, it's just crazy what Apple charges. I mean, going the refurb route and then just hyper upgrading, I'd much rather do that. But the 6G versus 3G was the internal speed of the bus for access to the drive. Yeah, so here's how it works out, right? So you got FireWire 800 is 800 megabit. 0.8 gigabit. And then um, SATA drives are either 3 gigabit, which is 3G, or 6 gigabit, which is the newer standard SATA drives. USB is like 300 megabit or something. Half is much slower than FireWire 800. Well, they've got 2 and 3, and there aren't aren't any Macs that I know of that are currently supporting USB 3. Right, Which is almost, I think, just under Thunderbolt. No. yeah. No, US really? Because Thunderbolt's ten gigabit. I, I think it's it's up there. I know it's not as fast, but I know it's it's faster than I believe eSATA and or as fast as and it's oh, okay. faster than uh eight hundred, the eight hundred firewire. Hmm. It turns out that the iMac has four bays that each of which can take an SSD if you wanted to go crazy. Who knew? And one of them would be giving up your C D drive? One of them, you give up your DVD. Mm-hmm. One of them, you would have to give up your um, SD card reader. So those are each connected, connected to the logic board internally. And those are both 3G connections. They're slow. And then there's two 6G connections inside the iMac, uh, each of which can be connected to fast drives to you know, get full bandwidth on the 6G drives. And what I learned was when I had bought mine, which I believe was around the August time frame, it was only within that month, I think it was the month of August, that Apple had just released updated firmware that actually gave full access to the 6G width of the 6G drives. Previously, it was only 3G drives. So that oh, so OWC already had their program in order to uh, do this turnkey upgrade in the way that it works for those of you that didn't catch it when Matt said it, you have to send your Mac into OWC. They are authorized to take it apart, put in the drives. In fact, I asked them if it voids your Apple warranty. It does not. You can still take your Mac back to an Apple uh, center, and they will repair it because OWC is an authorized Apple uh, dealer or whatever they are. Yeah, modifier. And, yeah, you can't. It's not a user-serviceable deal. In order to put drives into an iMac, you have to take the glass off. Yeah, in fact, I saw somebody, I saw a YouTube video because I was considering doing it myself. Because what happened is the people, self-modders were doing this, 
but they couldn't do it because what Apple had done is previously the drives had, um, you know how you've got the, the thermal that goes on the drive in order to detect the heat in order to control the fans? Yeah. Well, what Apple had done is they moved that into the firmware on the actual disk drive itself. So mm. OWC figured that out. I don't know if they reverse engineered or what they did. They figured out, so that's when they started their program. And I saw a YouTube video where a guy was using, you know, that uh, the squeegees that you can hang in your shower with the suction cups? Yeah. He was showing you how to use the suction cups yep. and put them up on the top two corners of the, the yeah. iMac screen and pull it off and swap I out the drive. And then they figure out that yeah. The the sensor is inside the drive, and when the sensor is not connected, the fans go up to like whatever their maximum tilt, speed is. Sure. <laughs> I, I broke that sensor years ago once on a Mac Mini when I took one apart, and the fan just spun full tilt all the time just to make sure the machine wouldn't overheat. You know, oh. which is kind of a smart design, but yeah. So anyway, I don't want to get too deep in the in the woods, but you and I both love SSD. I am with you. I would not own a computer with a spinning hard drive anymore. However, all my external storage is on Drobos and big disk arrays. All the stuff that I don't need super fast access to, like music and movies, where all you really need is it to play as fast as it needs to play to consume the media. But stuff that you use constantly, um, like your OS and, wow, launching mail, launching web browsers, everything is just so much faster because all the resources that it needs to grab are just instantaneous. It's like having it all in memory. Okay, but say what crazy thing you did. Because I went for redundancy. I had two 120-gig solid states, and that was so that one of my drives is my main OS, and then I'm using Carbon Copy Cloner in order to clone to the second one internal so that if anything happens, I'm immediately ready to just hold down the option key and reboot to my operating yep. system. And it you went the safe way. Day. I went, you uh, went the crazy way. I went the other end of the spectrum. I configured them as a RAID 0. So I have a 256-gig RAID 0. Dude, two solid-state drives as a RAID <laughs> 0 with your operating system is yeah. kick-ass. It's fast. It really is. It do, oh I, I, yeah. Dude, have it, you have you selected like 20 apps and then just hit Command-O to see how fast all of them open? Like I should tw- try that. You should, oh, you, you should go to your apps folder, do Command-A, and then Command-O. <laughs> just to see what would just happen. Just to see, yeah. And then watch the performance monitor. I think I will, but Dude, that machine's that at work. I'm at home right now. So. Crazy. Um, I, I, one of the things I tried to do is uh, to try to see how fast they were for just big files is duplicate files, like duplicate one gig movie files. Or, um, and I had to have, in order to get a meaningful test that actually I could measure, I had to have like four or eight gigs of stuff to duplicate. <laughs> so oh. on a spinning hard drive on my old Mac, uh, it took one minute to duplicate a one gigabyte file. And that and- now takes about... Three seconds. Yeah, two or three seconds, give or take. Oh, jeez. Yeah. It's really fast. It's stunning. So all that doesn't matter at all because all that I'm doing is FileMaker all day long. And so (laughs) what I really was trying to solve with all this is all the little tiny things that FileMaker does to its temp file that I don't really track how long they take. What's that total aggregate latency at the end of the day? And how much time am I saving myself in waiting, you know, 
on basic things like stepping through scripts and just connecting and disconnecting and doing large operations, importing records, you know, all the basic stuff that FileMaker, I didn't want it to have to wait for the disk for anything. I didn't notice a gigantic improvement in speed in running FileMaker, but it's definitely faster. Oh, well, yeah. Anything dealing with, like, large imports or exports, I've always used a RAM disk. Yeah, which would even be faster, yeah. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's just a temporary operation. But everything else, no, you, I don't know if you'll notice that much of a difference. Using using a RAM disk is maybe slightly less crazy than having a, a... Striped RAID as your boot drive. <laughs> yeah, but you're backing up a time machine. That's true. Constantly. So, SSD. Love it. Love it here. So, what's... Uh, you got a FileMaker Cool? FileMaker Cool. Or should we just go into our topic? Uh, yeah, I do have one FileMaker Cool. You know, I've worked with FileMaker long enough that there, there's... I don't want to be jaded and say there's, a, there's very few things that excite me, but there's... The one thing that I've really, really gotten a kick out of was there's this karate app that I've been developing as this ongoing separation model series on my magazine site but there's there was there's and this fits into our topic there's this abstraction that I've done where I have a calendar widget and I mean everything's time-based we're you know we're living in time and so this calendar widget which is in its own table um, can support any number of different calendars across a whole solution I abstracted it such that you can copy the calendar off of one layout, and you do the little trick. The first time that I heard the trick was from um, Bauman, Kirk Bauman, and the um, and uh, Mighty Data Group, mm-hmm. and it was basically Bowman. Kirk yeah, Bowman. Bowman. Sorry about that. Mighty Kirk, Kirk I call him. <laughs> <laughs> you rename the um, your table occurrence temporarily. Go in, copy your object, which has any of your related fields, from the layout where it formerly was, but having renamed the table occurrence, once you copy it and it's on the clipboard, it's on the clipboard with that particular name of a table occurrence. You then go back into the graph, change the name back to its original name, add your new table occurrence, and give it the temporary name that you had renamed it to, then paste that calendar, and boom. Yep. It's it's instant. And this little calendar widget with the abstraction is just, I'm loving it, because you can put it anywhere in any solution it supports all the different functionality it's just like your search results it's like you can plug it in here but you can use it for whatever tables you want hmm. i've used that trick often of the temporary renaming of a, of a table occurrence or several table occurrences to to copy whole layouts worth of data and have them function correctly it's a neat trick i wish it was easier to do yeah but I, it's pretty easy yeah you just have to remember a sequence of steps yep but I've been loving that. That's pretty cool. So abstraction. Let's get uh, Picasso here. <laughs> He's an so abstract ex- painter, for those of you who didn't know that. <laughs> so let's explain it. Um, because there are probably some listeners that they've heard the word abstraction. Maybe they're just getting into FileMaker, but they're like, what sure. is this? What do people keep talking about with regards to abstraction? How do you explain it? I was going to make you do it, but I'll, I'll take a stab, then you can correct me. Well, we're each <laughs> going to have our own perceptions of what it is, especially relative to the context of FileMaker. Well, yeah, that's true, because abstraction is certainly not a unique thing to FileMaker. I think it's, but I think it's actually more at home in other environments. In other words, you'd never do it any other way other than abstraction in a lot of programming environments. And in FileMaker, integration, the opposite of abstraction, was 
is very easy to do. You could you could hard code things. So like the opposite, uh, you know, what abstraction is not is. It's is, like hard to explain, huh? You somebody you know what you're doing when you do it, but you're like, what's abstraction? Well, that would be like the set field command, right? So if you if you have a script that you want to create a record and set some values, your script is going to say, go to a layout, and it's going to name the layout. It's going to say, go to the field, or you know, just set the field first name to please enter first name. And there's no abstraction layers in any of that. You're actually hard coding all that stuff in your script. So abstraction so it's a literal is, sequence of steps. Right. And and if you copied and pasted that script to work in some other context like invoice, it would not work. You'd have to go through and modify every bit of it because uh, it doesn't work. So abstraction is saying, okay, on this layer, which is my layout, I have a button that says create record. <clears throat> and if the button actually had a bunch of uh, parameters in the button itself that said, you know, go to table such and such, and these are the field defaults that I want you to set, and call the script generic record create. And the generic record create script says, oh, well, what layout am I going to? What fields am I setting? What am I going to do? What am I going to do when I'm done? And it just could work in any context. You could just paste that script in any solution because it didn't require context. It it went to a layout specified by the parameters that was calling it. And that would be what I would say is an example of uh, an abstracted solution. So let's give people an example, uh, you know, something that hopefully they could wrap their head around in order to explain. And it's set field is a good one because set field is an explicit call to a field, to a known field, and it will only work within the context of when that button is clicked. An abstraction would be set field by name. So by being able to take the name of whatever field you want to set, that has to still come from somewhere. So let's move it on to the button and put the name of the field on the button. But in order to abstract that further, rather than passing in a literal string of the name of a field which could change, mm -hmm. you're going to use another one of FileMaker's abstraction functions, which would be getFieldName, which is a really cool abstraction function. Mm -hmm. When you pass in the getFieldName, it allows you to specify the field name, but it then adheres to all of FileMaker's nuances with regards to its internal naming using IDs and leaving you with the ability to rename things. Exactly. Because if you yeah. go rename that field from customer first name to customer name first, the getFieldName function has abstracted that into the ID substructure of, of the file, so it doesn't matter. You rename it, no big deal. If you yeah, because the, script, the literal name to exactly. set, set by name, you are no longer, you're broken. Right, so to give, th there's three things you talked about. So the first thing was you just use plain old set field. Now that survives a field name change because yes. FileMaker has internally abstracted that and, and to the point where if you change, or not abstracted it, they've, current, they've pointed it internally at the ID of the field, even though it's only displaying the name of the field. The second but method where you said set field and context. you said name first, name first last, would break if you change the field name. And the third way, using two different abstractions, set field um, by name, and well, actually that's not the right name of the script step, is it? Is it set by name? Set field by name. 
I think it's setfield by name. I'd have to open yeah. the file maker. I'd, I would have to do that as well. And then um, also using the get field name function. And you, there's a couple different ways you could actually do that. If you're on a layout that has it, you could go to an object and get the name from that. Or you could yep. just type in the name of the field that you know it to be right now. And then if you'd rename the field, that would actually, FileMaker would reach out and modify that script and update it with the new correct name of the field, which is pretty sweet. Yes. And in that case, of course, you have to, it's got to be the full name of the field through the table occurrence, um, which means you could also just rename the table occurrence and that would also work. Yes. And there are other, other abstraction things too. Um, for example... I don't know how you would explain this one, but have you ever used had situations where you actually use a locally scoped variable within your calculations, but it still has it has little to do with your scripting? Oftentimes, this deals with the custom list function, is what I'm thinking about. The way that it custom list from Agnes Barrow, mm-hmm. you're you need to put things in places so that they are scoped and isolated, and that's a little bit different than abstraction. So I won't go off on that one. But, you know, that brings me an interesting something about, uh, that I learned recently about locally scoped variables. If you scope a variable locally and you run it in a script, and on a layout you actually have a script, the, uh, a variable showing on the layout that's using the new merge variable function that came with 11, I think. Right. But you don't show a global variable, you show a local variable, it will work. Yes. It'll still continue to show it even though the script is not running. Yes, that's because of the draw routines. It persists because FileMaker doesn't update the screen, you know, right. unless you do the refresh. Yeah, do a refresh or, re- or run the script again. It's pretty. That's pretty interesting. Maybe potentially yep. useful. Of course, I'm not sure what advantage that gives you other than just using global variables, but, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, global versus local. Yeah, so there's a lot of really good examples. Abstraction is definitely the biggest area, I think, is separating what you have on your layout, you know, your interface from how scripts operate so that the whole point of it is you can, the script can be copied and pasted to different contexts and, and are therefore much more useful for different things. Well, so generic- yeah, the, the whole goal is reusability. In fact, yes. when we were at the very beginning, when we were first trying to uh, come up with uh, abstraction and I deferred to you, my thought process of what abstraction was is Abstraction is basically as simple as this. If your whole FileMaker solution, all of its functionality was contained within one script, you're not abstracted at all. Abstraction is simply taking out individual little pieces and letting those individual pieces be able to self-adjust based on you know, the environment they're being run in mm-hmm. within the context. In other words, they're not tied to context. You've abstracted them from as many different areas so that the number of dependencies is ideally would be zero. And it would just be able to take something in and then put something out and what comes out would be usable. Right. And I know that that I know that sounds, you know, off in la la land without a specific example, but that's sort of what it is. You want to for example, you want ad- abstracted search results so that it isn't tied to your specific solution. Anybody can just plug in with a few little hooks yep. and it'll work. I want a calendar that's abstracted so that I can take it out of the solution I'm coding and put it into five others or ten mm-hmm. others or exactly. however many others. Yeah, so as products, you know, you and I both produce products that we sell and abstraction is a huge part of that. You know, for search results, I think I spend as much time, maybe more time, making it abstracted so that it would be easy to integrate 
as I did just building the search functionality. I'm reading a book right now called In the Plex about Google. Um, boy, it's really it's really uh, mind opening all the stuff that goes into uh, just making a search and all the stuff that happens when you see results of a page and all the abstraction layers within Google. Did you know that every single time you get search results in Google that you're seeing an auction happen? Every ad is an auction. Every single ad that shows up on that page, a little auction happens to say which one's the right one showing. You know, oh, yeah, um, yeah. But this yeah, is algorithmically. Cool. Yeah, it's what? all algorithmic. It says, <laughs> well, he just searched for this, and these ads match that pretty good, and these different vendors bid a certain amount of money for that ad, and it calculates the correct price that it's going to charge those people if you click their link, and that's decided at the time the page is built. Pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. And um, also, I mean, because... You know, I had used uh, AdWords. Um, yeah, it's AdWords. AdSense is the one that pays you. AdWords is the one that you pay for. Right. Um, I had used that, and there's so many different little metrics they have going on that. You know, what's the popularity of your ad? How many times has it been clicked on? I mean, all kinds right. of stuff. So, you know, they, they've got abstraction down pretty well. Uh, I think it would but, – but I think there's also limits in abstraction. I would recommend not going overboard and overly abstracting a solution that's going to be a single user thing built by, you know, used by one person or something. I was just going to say that that should be where right where we go next is like when do you abstract and how much because abstraction costs you time yes. up front. It takes you time to sit down – and rather than just hook things up directly, sort of like plugging in Tinker Toys, mm -hmm. you actually have to say, you know, how am I going to actually build these five new Tinker Toy parts that are going to integrate with my existing Tinker Toys so that they work? And you, that's a thought process. You have to sit down and engineer that, and it costs you time up front, but then you end up with these usable chunks that you can use later. But if you need to just get something out and the client wants it, Man, I I guess you just hook it up. I'm I just yep. I have a hard time though when I because I always want to make things like autonomous. These little things that yeah. I can use everywhere else. Well, it really depends upon you know if you build by the hour, <laughs> <laughs> um, and somebody wants it fast, and somebody wants it fast, then you know quick and dirty is the way to do it. Knowing that later on you can go re-abstract that process, and you know if it scales. If you're a vertical market company, you definitely abstract because you're building for scale. Uh, one of the other lessons I've learned from this Google book is scale. <laughs> and maintenance. Google, Google is the world's largest um, server manufacturer. They make more servers than HP. They make their own? Yes. They don't buy... Well, I mean, I, I would imagine they would buy direct or buy bulk, but... They buy logic boards and hard drives and... You know, they buy really crappy components and they put them together as servers and they put thousands of tens of thousands of them on in data centers. Huh. Data centers data centers are just shipping containers. Did they did their own manufacturing yeah. of the actual boxes? Well, I don't know if they call it manufacturing. I'm sure they have a process but and they don't sell them, so they're not really, you know, like they're real servers, but and I'm not sure that that claim sounds even though it was made in the book, it sounds a little bit uh far fetched, but I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> wow what else do you say about abstraction other than I mean you can't give too many specific examples it's one of those things that you know when you're doing it yeah. you know when you need to do it you know when you uh, want something to be abstracted well, unless I guess you haven't had enough exposure to know 
because if you don't know that the what the get field name and uh, get field does, and how those two might interrelate, mm -hmm. I mean, definitely go look into those and you know figure out how you can apply them into your own solutions. So let's see. What are some of the other things? Would would you define the separation model where you have data and interface separate? Would you say that's an abstraction layer, or was is that an example of something else? Uh, for me, it would be an abstraction of a conventional FileMaker you know, development model. Mm -hmm. The databases and that FileMaker gives you and the databases that you may commonly see from another FileMaker developer, those are not heavily abstracted systems. As soon as you start to pull the data out, maintain it separately in its own file with the intent that you're going to have as little crossover as possible, meaning in that file that contains data, you don't want to have any scripts, you don't want to have any value lists, you don't want to have mm -hmm. any layouts, that requires effort. And yeah, it does. That, that is an abstraction. I would say plugins are also are an abstraction because you only integrate with a plugin through that calculation. And so it really lives in its own separate layer. It's a black box kind of a thing. You don't edit the plugin code. You just call the plugin function. And so once you've abstracted something, it really becomes a function. It becomes a black box kind of a thing. So that's one script calling another script. Um, that's a difficulty, though, though, because from the mindset of most FileMaker developers, I would think that the as soon as you have that plugin come into play, that now becomes a dependency. So it's not like you can feel... To me, it wouldn't necessarily feel like an abstraction within the environment of FileMaker because without it, the solution won't run. Well, yeah. But really, if you take out one of your scripts, that's, that's your script that creates records, your whole system's dependent on that, too. Yeah, but that's in the, in the exact same way that a plugin is. I, I still think you, you the way you interact with a plugin is through an abstraction layer. You call it through a calculation. And so that's why I would say it's an example of what an abstraction layer is. And, and I've, I've seen people go further. They build a custom function to call an SQL plugin. So if you, have, if you use a function in SQL to look up a record or create a record or something like that, and you don't know if you're going to stay with the same plugin that you're using now to do that job, you could build a custom function, which actually calls the plugin, and then when you're actually coding to create records and, and um, uh, look up joined results to show display data or whatever, you don't actually call the, f the plugin. You just call the custom function, which then calls it. So now you've got you know, a couple of layers of abstraction. That's the thing you end up with, right? You end up with, a, at the end of the day, a user clicks a button, which runs a script, which calls a custom function, which calls a plugin. And so you've got all these layers going on that are all happening they're all independent from each other and communicating with each other, and they only have to know about one level deep. Dude, what a cool term, right? Because it can mean so many things in so many different ways. In fact, uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia um, page on abstraction, and it's got abstraction in art, abstraction in psychology, abstraction in computer science, abstraction in mathematics, and... It's just, yeah. they've got, you know, abstraction is the thought process wherein ideas are distanced from objects. But, you know, defining it within the environment of whatever you're working in, from one developer to the next, it's not like you can say, well, did you abstract that? 
and it will mean the exact same thing to two different developers. It definitely is one of those uh, very ambiguous terms in terms of what you consider abstraction within the world of FileMaker is. I know we're nowhere near Easter, but uh, here's a cool Easter egg for you while you're on the internet. Google the word recursion. Oh, I think I've heard of this one. <laughs> uh, it's really subtle, and probably a lot of people wouldn't get it. <laughs> and that's assuming I spelled it correctly. Did you mean recursion? You I spelled, spelled it correctly. I, I, it's I recursively it, looking up. <laughs> I, I, sp I spelled it with one C, and sometimes I spell it with two. With two it's R-E-C-U-R-S-I-O-N. Yep. And that's funny. It is funny. Crack me up Did when I first saw that. So <laughs> subtle, but so clever. <laughs> so All right. What else you got on abstraction layers? Anything? Or are we done? I think, I don't know that th there's not much more that we could talk about it that I can think of that'll give people value. Yeah, because there's uh, certainly tons more we could talk about it that would bore you to tears. <laughs> but it requires specific examples, and in order for us to fumble through explicit, uh, specific examples, we'd be boring the heck out of everybody. Well, I would just you know open up FM Search Results. Go download FM Search Results if you want to play with this at fmsearchresults.com. How much, and I have tons of abstraction in there, as I said earlier, was required. How much do you have in, uh, in your stuff? Steam Studio um, have a lot of it? Well, yeah, I mean, I have all my uh, custom function, you know, mayhem, where I've got tons of those. Um, I'm always, I consider that a form of abstraction. Anytime that I can abstract into, but that's also covered under other terms, like dry, you know, don't repeat yourself and just have code be right. in one place. Um, but, I mean, we were talking about one thing that, that could be considered abstraction is, for example, in FM search results, we were just... You were showing me this on screen, and I was—I had mentioned to you—you you have all these configurations, and mm -hmm. all of these configurations they can be stored in—you know—they could be stored in globals, they can be stored in a table, they can be stored in a script. And one of the one of the things that I sort of consider an abstraction is you can just use a single text object on a layout that contain, can contain an unlimited number of configuration settings. Mm -hmm. Preferences, like, yeah. Like show, uh, show in separate window on versus yep. show uh, search toolbar off, show I, this, whatever. It was and an so awesome of, tip. Thank you. A lot of people will put, you know, they'll create multiple different fields, and each field will be like preference, and then maybe the name, you'll have the name of preference and then the value of preference, and it can be a Boolean on-off. Mm -hmm. But if you put this all within one text field, and the user can go to the one layout where this text field is, they double-click on the text field, and then they can set any of the settings as long as they follow the structured format. And I was mentioning that, like, the INI file format for configuration files is a very common uh, format for a lot of different languages. If you follow that format, then it's in a known structure which you can then parse. So the abstraction in this scenario would basically be get layout, um, what is it? Get layout object name. Get layout object just, attribute. And then you just get the, you have that, that text object be named, and I suggested the word like conf, which mm -hmm. configuration, sure. short, and that's all over the, uh, the Linux world. Mm -hmm. And then you just get the content of that layout object attribute. 
and it pulls all of that. And then with the content of that one text object, you can do whatever you want. You yeah. can parse it, use the individual parts. You could directly evaluate it if it's formatted as an internal let statement. Yep. So the problem that that solved for me is I, didn't, I did not want to have to create a table with a bunch of fields to store preferences for a developer type function. I would never really let, I wouldn't really want a user to be able to go in uh, to a, a system, like if you've got 50 different users in the system and have them go to a layout, go to layout mode and change a text box. I think that's not intuitive. But oh, for yeah. a developer who's integrating a product that they buy and making decisions on how it's supposed to work for users, I think it's totally acceptable, uh, especially if the solution already has layout work where you're copying and pasting stuff in, to when you're in layout mode, type some stuff into this text box and um, and configure it. I think that's actually plenty intuitive. Um, and it, it it decreases your number of objects down to one. Yes, you don't have to have any fields. <laughs> it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So there, if you understood that, uh, listeners, there's a tip. <laughs> use yeah. uh, use the uh, get layout object attribute. I bet two out of our three listeners uh, probably got that. Oh, no, way more. We've got brilliant uh, <laughs> listeners. Yeah, but I, what I meant was we only have three of them. <laughs> and one of them fell asleep 20 minutes ago. Not even close. They love us. Well, they should email right. us more then. What's our email address? Uh, can't they just use matt at filemakertalk.com? They could do I that. Think I think can. that goes to both of us, yeah. Yeah. Or, or matt at msnmedia.com. Or to Matt me? at FileMakerTalk.com. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to give people I, your I know your it works. I know. Email. I've registered the domain, so I know it's forwarding the email. It does. And that's easy. Thanks very much, everyone. Thanks for, to you, Matt. Hey, always a pleasure. Love it. See ya. See ya.